and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Dr. Michelle Borba is an internationally renowned educator, award-winning author, and parenting child expert. She's recognized for her solution-based strategies to strengthen children's character, resilience, and reduce peer cruelty. And I'm a father of two beautiful kids. Uh, it is a hard job being a parent. So I love this conversation with Michelle because I really believe that all of us as parents are constantly on a quest to try to figure out how we can be better. And she is a sought after motivational speaker. She has spoken in 19 countries and five continents, and she served as a consultant to hundreds of schools and corporations. Her clients have included Sesame Street, Harvard, the U.S. Air Force Academy, and many, many other areas of our military. She also is an NBC contributor where she's appeared over 150 times on the Today Show and countless shows, including Dateline, Dr. Phil, The View, NBC Nightly News. And I could keep rattling off shows that she's appeared on. She's been on a lot. She's been a spokesperson for major corporations. She's an award-winning author, as I mentioned earlier, of over 24 books translated into 19 languages. She has won awards in academia. She's won awards in the child safety area. She has absolutely been a force when it comes to thinking about how we can raise safe, productive, and, and healthy young people. And Michelle has also been in the field. She is a former classroom and special education teacher, and she has a doctorate in educational psychology and counseling. So she has a wide range of experience, including raising three boys, which we get into in this conversation. So I think you're going to love it. I am always trying to find ways to better myself as a parent, and hopefully this will make you think about how we can develop our young people. So 
Here is Dr. Michelle Borba. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Borba as well. I don't know which of those you, you like to go by, um, but is there a preference there? Oh, yeah. I'm going to be Michelle for you the rest of your life. Thank you very much, though. Perfect. So we'll go with Michelle. Um, as I was doing research for this conversation, I know we're going to talk about things like resilience and curiosity and everything you've learned about, about thriving and empathy. I have no doubt we're going to get to those things. But I like looking in the acknowledgement section and I like looking at dedications. And so when I read, when I saw Thrivers, the dedication were, it seemed like to two special people, Charlie and Hazel. And um, from all research that I did, it seemed like those are your grandkids. Do I have that right? You are so right. The gift of my life and every one of you is out there. There is nothing cooler than a grandchild. I have a two-year-old granddaughter and a four-year-old grandson. And it is absolutely fun, fun, fun. I look at resilience and I look at them and I went, whoa, this is just perfect priming. I don't know how their parents are going to think about it, but every moment I have, I'm just having a fun time with them on just building them up from the inside out. So what's different about being a grandparent than it, than what was for you as a parent? What, what's what well, the difference? Well, first thing is the obvious, you get to return them. <laughs> Second of all, you get perspective that's absolutely fascinating. I think in the moment I keep thinking about this, I have three sons. They were absolutely wonderful. They're grown. But what happens is in the heat of the moment of your parenting, you're so into the, the checklist and all the things you have to do. And sometimes what I now realize that I've missed some of those just extraordinary sit down. And did he really say that? Oh my gosh, look what she's doing. You're just enjoying the child for who they are. Uh, and so if there's any warm not there for you as a parent, just enjoy them. They grow up. I know your mother and dad told you that, but they honest to gosh, do grow up much faster than you ever think that they will. Is there anything that I, so I have two kids. I'm actually one of three boys as well. So God bless you. God bless my mother. But <laughs> Is there anything that I should be thinking about as a parent beyond the perspective of they grow up and, you know, it yeah. flashes before your eyes. Yeah. Is there anything that you think you wish you had done differently as a parent that as a grandparent, you now see things and you're like, wait, maybe I could have changed that. Or is your, pers is your perspective different on parenting than it was when you were raising three boys? The single most important thing that I see now in terms of parenting that I would caution us all to just sit up and recognize it's a different world than we're raising our children than we grew up and then I raised my own children in. And I, I now know that I have got to help my son and daughter-in-law prepared their kids for a very uncertain world. It's going to be a, a world that is far more, uh, well, it's going to be more challenging in terms of it's got a lot more adversity. When I was growing up, it was uh, raising my own kids. It was all about no child left untested. It was the GPA, the rank, the score. And now we know that the whole child really matters. And we're seeing uh, a rise in mental health that has been unprecedented. In, when I wrote Thrivers, the book that we're talking about today, it was one in five American kids was going to suffer from a mental health disorder. Then came COVID. It's now one in three. And I think the most important takeaway there is that a crisis only amplifies a pre-existing issue. So we're looking at a different world and we just have to step up to the plate and know that our kids will be faced with adversity. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't rescue them. We have to prepare them for life. Here's what I wonder about a lot. So we have gone toward destigmatizing mental health. More and more people will raise their hand and say they're depressed or dealing with anxiety. Yeah. More and more people are willing to get help and see a therapist. And as we see that happening, you mentioned those numbers. And like, I, I go back and forth in my head. I'm like, what is going on? I, I've spent a lot of time on college campuses. We all know mm -hmm. like there is a dearth of counseling that is available on college campuses um, and so I'm like curious about what does the future hold? Because as we have been destigmatizing, we've seen numbers increase as well. And so I'm like curious about like what is actually the best path forward for us? Because I'm all about destigmatizing and having people get help. Yeah. But then I'm also like, well, if you're 19 years old and you broke up with a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're sad, 
we need to know like what sadness is and how it's different from depression. And we need to understand if I'm anxious before I give a speech, like that is kind of normal versus an anxiety disorder. And I worry a little bit about the distinctions that we're making in the world of psychology and, and how we can best help people. So I don't know if there's a question in there, but I'd be curious to get your perspective. Well, let me give you my perspective on it because science is really offering new uh, wake up calls to us all. The first thing is, I think the best study I have ever, ever seen in mental health, I'm a educational psychologist and counseling and psychology is my background. I'm concerned like you are. But last month, a brand new study that took about 20 years to evolve that involved thousands of people. They were trying to figure out what causes this mental health crisis. And we, for years, have figured out or thought it was low serotonin levels. And so what we did was medicate, medicate, medicate. And now what they've just came up with this in the study is it has a very low correlation. Serotonin levels, it's not. The highest correlation is how we deal with negative experiences. So there's the first thing. As parents, as grandparents, as whatever, the first thing we need to do is help our kids learn to handle adversity because everybody's going to have a negative experience. It isn't one negative experience, it's the buildup. And when we look at the best science on resilience, what I think we're doing wrong is not using the preventative model. We're still into intervening and putting all our time and effort waiting till the kid is 18, 19, and 20. And I, I worked on college campuses just like you. We have so many dismal kids on college campuses that, yes, they're running out of uh, counselors. But the second thing is there are many Ivy League schools that are so concerned about children's lack of resilience that the first week of college orientation is a crash course in resilience. Let's go to another one. I'm just going to throw you all over on let's start being preventative. I've worked on 18 Army bases, and it was another whoa wake-up call. One of the things I learned there that they said that that they were doing wrong is, again, realizing that PTSD was huge. But maybe what they weren't doing is preparing their soldiers for going into adversity. They did a heck of a job with their Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs contacted me and said, you should be teaching the stuff that we're learning on how to handle adversity uh, be because we're doing a better job and it's actually reframing our brains. I said, okay, what the heck are you guys doing differently? He said, it's pretty simple. Number one is we recognize our stress signs. Number two is we start pointing them out to each other so we all know our stress signs. We don't wait until it builds because everybody's got stress. The second thing is we start figuring out what to do instead. We immediately take one, two breaths, slow, deep breath, hold it, let it out, exhale twice as long as you inhale. I'm giving you the little simplified version. We can go into depth on that. And then we tell ourselves, chill out or calm down. We get through some of the most adverse situations you could possibly imagine using that model. So I think the first thing is let's be more preventative. Let's look at what science is saying. Resilience, let's break through the myths. It's not a program, it's a process. It's not one a challenge that bothers us. It's the buildup, like building blocks without nobody putting something positive in place or teaching us buffers or coping skills, knowing that stress is there, but every child is going to deal with it. And it's not GPA, rank, or IQ that helps you. Thrivers are made, not born. So if you use that as your new mantra, what you're doing is you got a whole new way to handle resilience in yourself and with the kids or those you deal with. It's interesting. You brought up the seals. I've probably had like seven or eight on the podcast. I became friends yeah. with a bunch of them. And then yeah. it's fascinating because their, their process to becoming a seal is all about resilience. It's, yes. it's all, it's a weeding out process to try to find the ones that are most resilient. Um, and when I think of resilience, I think of Angela Duckworth's work on grid. And, and I think what gets missed or lost in her work is everyone focuses on the perseverance part of grit, but they don't actually focus on the passion part. And she's pretty clear on it. She talks about passion and perseverance. And even in our schools, when they talk about grit, they always talk about perseverance or I'm watching hard knocks, which follows the D Detroit lions and the head coach has grit a grit hat that he's wearing every day. And it's all about perseverance, but the passion piece is actually an interesting component because the seals that I've become friendly with, one of the issues that they do struggle with when they come back from war is 
where's their passion? They had a mission. They were focused on something and a lot of them struggle. I had one on that was suicidal and, and to- talked about his story of putting a gun to his head and a, a lack of passion. Like what is the thing? And now that guy's off to become an astronaut. Like he's incredible because he found something yeah. that he was passionate about. Can you talk about the passion component of resilience yeah. and how yeah. that plays a role? I am so glad you brought this up because I know we want our kids and us to have grit, but what we've done is push the grit so much that we're now dealing with kids. I I deal with hundreds of kids. And I, every time I speak to a different group, I always do a focus group with children, teens across the U S last week I was in, just came back from Las Vegas. The week before was Milwaukee and I'm off my way to, to Baltimore. Every one of them is saying we're, we're, we just don't have any motivation anymore. We just can't keep going. We're overwhelmed. And the reason for it, and then everybody blames them. You don't have any grit. Well, it's because the passion piece is gone. So let's first look at at what else matters besides the grit because the navy seals nailed it and we've got to look at it i looked at resilience and i studied hundreds of i, I think first of all parenting books these days are missing the gold mine they tell you all the stuff to do which is wonderful but they fail to tell you that resilience is teachable and some of the best researchers in the world have been trying to study kids who have overcome adversity homelessness, war zones. Uh, I've I've worked on, uh, oh my gosh, refugee camps. How come some of those kids endure? And it's not temperament or DNA. They've learned some skills. So then I looked at if that's true, and there's some traits that matter besides just the grit, what are they? I came up with seven. Grit is one of them. But one of them is confidence, which is the purpose and passion piece. You have meaning over your life. It's not pushed into you by just because you're going to get a trophy, but let's figure out who our kids are and who we are. And that's so critical for your own productivity in the business world. The second one is can empathy. We stay, can we stay there for a second? And yeah, um, I think we can use these seven and we'll go through them, but confidence, there's something that I read that you said about the who and mm-hmm. really focusing on the who more than the what and working with athletes. This is massive because especially college athletes, they graduate and most of them are not professionals. So they graduate and their whole, their whole identity, their whole life has been, I'm a basketball player, soccer player, field hockey player, whatever it is. And then they go in the real world and they're like, holy crap, wait, who am I? <laughs> and they, they struggle with it. And I think one of the disservices we sometimes do with sports is we glamorize and glorify what they do and not who they are, which is underneath it. And that's why you hear a lot of athletes say, I'm more than a basketball player. I'm more than this because they want their identity to be stronger than just putting a ball in a hoop. Can you talk about the who and how we can identify the who in each person and how that can help build their confidence? Well, first of all, yay that you mentioned it, because what I discovered when I was trying to find the seven traits of thrivers through when I was writing this book, it was the confidence was the piece that was seemed to be really uh, derailing our kids and us. Why? Well, number one is uh, we're all going to feel guilty, but we now know that 77% of the time as parents, we focus on our kids' weaknesses, not their strengths. Our first question is what you get, as opposed to who are you? What did you enjoy today? What's going on with you? Uh, we're looking at the number one time our kids are most likely to drop out of school and a freshman year, first semester of college. Why? Because they get there and they realize that what they've been pushed to, the major and everything about it isn't naturally there. College uh, football coaches and high school coaches are so concerned that every one of the kids also thinks they're going to make the NFL. They're going to get there. And then they realize, oh my gosh, it's not. So here's the thing we now know. Our children, I think the best researcher on this one is Bill Damon. He's from Stanford. He's been watching our kids as they come in to Stanford. And he said, my gosh, they're smart. We are really raising, by the way, an extremely smart, well-educated group of kids. But he said they're empty. And what he's seeing is over and over again, that piece that's really going to help keep their, okay, mental health alive, keep their passion alive, keep their grit alive, is knowing who they are. Uh, one of the things I did in the first chapter of the book was write what's called a core asset survey, where I identified 150 strengths. And I asked parents, just go through it, figure out who your kid is, not what you want them to become, but who they are. And then once you discover, I don't care if it's their learning styles or their character strengths or just what they love to do, what their hobbies are. Do you know that there's another thing that's fascinating on why you want to do that? 
when we look at why some kids are able to overcome the adversity and us, us grownups, we find that very often it's the kid who has a hobby. He goes to the knitting or the woodworking or the music. That's his go-to thing. And it helps him reduce stress. I ask kids, what's your hobby? And many of them, they'll look at me like, who's got time for a hobby? So step one is the who. And by the way, that isn't just for kids. Many businesses, the first thing you get as a brand new employee is a book called Clifton Strengths. And what they want you to do is identify what your strengths are, because once you know them, that's going to make you a better team player. And it's going to make you more productive because you figure out what your goals are, your strengths are. And University of Chicago will tell you one other thing. When are we happiest? When we're engaged in flow. What the heck is flow? It's being engaged in something that gives you purpose and direction, what your strength, what you're good at, and you don't want to stop working at it. That's when your grit is the hardest. That's when it's the longest, when you're doing something you love. All right. I want to go back one step. So I'm going to dovetail off what you said. There's another study that looked at professional soccer players and Mm -hmm. found that those that had a hobby actually performed better. And for years, we sort of glamorized and glorified the obsessed athlete who was one dimensional. And if you study a lot of elite performers, they do have something else that they're interested in. And they're actually learning in that other thing and applying it to their craft. But there's something else you said earlier, and I want to go back to the SEALs that I don't want to get lost on, on in the resilience conversation, which is teams. SEAL teams, they're not just SEALs. And you ask any person that's been in the military, they'll talk about the power of teams. And once again, I come from a sports world. It's the team. Like when people retire from their sport, you ask them what they miss most. It's it's the team. So can you talk about a sense of belonging and working yeah. towards something that's bigger than y- yourself and how that can also lead to the passion or the purpose or whatever it might be. Okay. Number two on the list of the seven strengths of thrivers is empathy. That's the team building. That's we, not me. Now here's the problem. For the longest time, we've looked at empathy as soft and fluffy. And now all of a sudden the pandemic came and all of our mental health went, we all became burned out and we all looked at what the heck is going on. Well, we didn't have each other. What we now know for our kids, our kids are, this is really sad, but when we're tracking our children, this generation, they're also the loneliest generation. College-bound kids, University of Chicago told me they were seeing a trend that was, was frankly scary, and that was prior to COVID, this is prior, they were seeing a new trend of kids not wanting roommates because they didn't know how to get along and they didn't have the social skills. That's why we need to keep the team concept going. It can be on the sports field, but it can also be in the classroom. Who's your team? Cooperative learning. Every kid having a buddy. So when you walk in, I don't care if you're five or you're 18, the first thing you do is turn to your paired partner and share and go, so how was your night? What did you do? Or throughout the day, what's the most important thing you just learned right there? Or when we look at kids who are the most popular, okay, the kids who are thrivers, what do they have going? They use three skills. There's three simple skills. Number one, they say, hello, hi, how are you? That's the first step of team building. Number two, they look at the other person. They don't look down, they use eye contact. That's the first step on team building too. How are you doing? Third is they encourage each other. When you look at a real good team, I always tell a parent, don't just talk about the win of the team. Look at how they lose. Look at how they get together. Look at how that every time somebody does a winning point, they are there to support each other. And what happens is your empathy starts to go up. You start feeling more we, not me. And it makes such a difference in a kid's life. I once said to someone, gosh, if the world was just more empathetic, what would the world look like? And it was interesting. The person did a lot of work with highly vulnerable populations. And they said, yeah, empathy is great, but survival needs to come before empathy. And a lot of times people just need food and and need to be taken care of. And it actually was really helpful to hear that. I I think I was like, oh yeah, that's actually, we can't dismiss that some people don't even have safety and like basic, basic needs. Um, But I want to go to that empathy piece again, because you said something that caught my attention when you said, we think of it as like soft and fluffy. The name of my company is called Strong Skills with the idea of changing how our world thinks about soft skills. I think soft skills is just an awful phrase. And empathy to me is, is a part of how we can cultivate strong skills. And 
we can't be empathetic if we don't also have a good relationship with ourselves. And so so many of my clients are so self-critical and they're, they're beating themselves up. They're not actually giving themselves the grace that they might even extend to a stranger. And so can you talk about underneath empathy or, or perhaps what comes before it in order for us to be able to thrive and what are the other ingredients? Well, yeah. As well? Thank you very much because a, a couple of things that you brought up. Number one is Maslow 101. Yes, you have to have safety and a feeling of security, emotional safety first. That's food, that's attachment, that's just feeling that everything's going to be okay. Many of the kids I'm dealing with in war-torn areas, that's obviously prime and president. But number two is you also have to feel compassionate about yourself. If you feel okay about who you are and take care of you and your own needs, you're actually going to be more likely to reach out and feel for another person. It's really tough. And I think this is a key point on burnout that we're also concerned about. When you're stressed and you're not taking care of you, what you always have to do just in terms of health 101 is dial your empathy down. You're in survival mode. So you're taking care of you and your own needs. What happens though, when you keep keep tearing care of yourself and putting the stress down because you don't have a coping strategy, relationships tank and burnout is the outcome because empathy is not there. So it's, it's a piece that's part and parcel with it. There's also three kinds of empathy. And I think it's really important because a parent will go, my child's on the spectrum. He doesn't have the affective type. That's okay. There's three different types. The first type is the affective type. And you can actually see that in a very young child. That's when they start. You can see it in a two-year-old. Oh my gosh, you start to cry and your two-year-old jumps on you and starts to pat you. And I, I remember a mom saying, he started to pat me. He took the tears away. Then he ran and got a Band-Aid and put it on my face because he didn't know what else to do. They hug you. They love you. They rush out to the dog who's crying and get so worried about it. That's two. Around the age of four, theory of mind starts to come in and, oh my gosh, this is the godsend that Harvard says is critical, where the kid begins to realize the other kid has a different brain. Then it comes around the age of eight where they have this glorious concept when they go, wow, he even thinks differently than I. Then you're able to start stepping into the other person's shoes. That's what we're missing right now. And that's what Harvard Business Review says is now the top employability factor. You want to get the job. What clients clients are looking for right now is does that that group that business understand where I'm coming from? That's the design thinking model. Here's the other thing that you need to know is that 20% of Fortune 500 companies are now doing empathy training because the new employees coming in are so low in it that they can't get into the shoes of the other person. Empathy can be cultivated. It's a critical thriving straight. But the third thing is so if you feel it, and so if you know it, what are you going to do about it? That's empathy in action. That's the behavior component of it. And we now know one of the best stress reducers is called altruistic suffering. When you really see somebody else suffering and you realize, oh my gosh, I've been that, through that myself, even though I'm stressed, I'm going to reach out and do something for him. Every kid said that's the moment that turned their life around because I feel better about who I am knowing somebody else feels that, but now I made him feel better. That's I it. I, so this is going to be a question maybe that will be helpful for your son and, and your daughter-in-law because I'm in a similar stage. We have a five, five and a half year old and six and a half year old. And I had a client tell me this before I had kids. And she said, take care of the marriage first and the kids second. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what she meant. And then I had kids and, you know, I'm about like our second came along. And so we've got like a two-year-old and a, you know, six-month-old. And my wife looks at me and she's like, Brian, you okay? <laughs> and uh, I'm, like, I'm like, I don't know. I'm exhausted. Like, I am exhausted. She's like, yeah, you stop doing stuff for yourself. And when she said that, I was like, holy shit, you know, like, I've been focused on the marriage. I, I got that part and I've been focused on the kids, but like, am I doing enough to take care of myself? And so I've sort of changed the advice that I was given, which is take care of myself first, the marriage second, the kids third, but mm-hmm. you know, you're a parent of three kids. Like a lot of times it goes in the opposite order. It's like, okay, we need to focus on kids because they literally need us to survive when they're little. And then maybe we can have a glass of wine and date night with our spouse if we're lucky and privileged and fortunate to do that. 
And then maybe I'll go play around the golf with my buddies if I can make that happen, especially those early years. And so I'm curious for you, having seen it and walked through it as a parent and now seeing it from a grandparent perspective, how do you think about that capacity as a parent to take care of yourself first, then take care of the marriage and take care of the kids when perhaps many of us are like so focused on the kids that the marriage might get. And I, last night I celebrated 10 year anniversary with my wife and like, you know, I, I agree. It's, it's awesome. And um, it's, it's hard. Like it takes work. Yeah, It's it hard. Work. But um, let's, yeah. I'm going to go back to science for just a minute. Cause sometimes we need to hear not from the so-called expert. What the heck does science say about what really creates good parenting? Okay. Robert Epstein was the president of the American Academy of of American Psychological Association. And he and a team of psychologists have had the same question that you had. So what they did is all the work for us. They looked at hundreds and hundreds of parenting studies. What the heck of all these studies and all this advice that everybody gives us really matters? And they came up with 10 10 things. The most highly correlated what creates a good parent. Number one on the list was the no-brainer. You love the kid, okay? You love them and you like them and there's an equal balance in your home of firmness and warmth. Okay, what's number two on the list? Has nothing to do with what you do with the child. Has to do with what you just said. Are you managing your own stress and taking care of yourself? Because if you don't, your stress feeds over to your kids and they pick it up because they mirror our own stress. Right now, it isn't just the kids who are stressed. We're stressed. In fact, we're looking at more parents that are stressed than children. It's just just tweaking over to our kids. So the first thing is breathe so your kids can breathe. You're right. But- but okay, so I love that you bring the science into it. Love it. I think it's awesome. And I think science is is often more powerful than an individual story. But when we were talking before we started recording, you said, I've been to 93 countries. I, you know, you talked about earlier, you've worked with all these challenging populations. Um, you are going to Baltimore and you're traveling and and it's clear. I don't think anyone's questioning your passion for this work. It is, it, it oozes out of you. No one will ever be like, yeah, Dr. Michelle Borba, she lacks passion for her work. How do you manage yourself? How do you make sure that as you're traveling, as you are clearly mission-driven and and wanting to pour into our, our gen- next generation of, of children and parents, how do you make sure that you're good? How do you make sure you're taking care of yourself? Well, I think the first thing on empathy and self-compassion is back to what the SEALs do. They recognize their stress levels. And so I really have tuned into when am I starting, when am I tired? When am I to the point where I'm really on edge that I need to put myself up? And I think that's the first thing as a parent or a good employer, a good whatever you are, you need to recognize your own stress level. The second thing, though, is so what on that? So what do you do to help support yourself when it starts to build so it doesn't get into the octane mode? And for me... Everybody is different. That's the worst thing to say is go take a bubble bath or you should go read. You got to figure out what works for you. And what works for me is back to relationships. I've got a team of people that I can get on the phone with and that I Zoom with some girlfriends. I have an incredible husband. That really helps relationships. Number two is reading. It's amazing to me that I've discovered from way back when, maybe it's my parents who always handed books to me, but if I get into a good literary fiction book, I actually can get out of myself and into that character and it really helps. Third thing is a a 20 minute nap. Those are the things that seem to work. I always carry a blow up pillow in my suitcase. That's in my backpack. And no matter where I am, I can zone out in an airplane or whatever and get recharged. The key is find what works for you and stick to it as a routine and a ritual. It can't be uh, lofty and always do spa treatments. It has to be what you can do in the here and now. The second thing as a parent is once you figure out, for instance, that one-two breathing. I tell parents, if it works for you, then do it in front of your kids. Because the best way to teach any one of these skills, and that's what resilience is made up of, skills, 
is by you showing the child, not telling the child. Pretty soon, if you do this regularly, I'm talking two minutes a day for around 21 days. What begins to happen is your kid goes, mom, you need to take that one, two breath. And I say, oh, how about you? Let's do it together. And what will happen is your whole family will start picking up the skills that you all need to be resilient and everybody wins. I'm smiling because just yesterday my, my daughter was annoying my son and I could see my son getting <laughs> frustrated and yeah, you know, maybe you should take a breath. But I think it's way more powerful if we're doing it t- together and you're also being vulnerable and sharing when you're frustrated as well. And as a parent, like pretty much every day you get frustrated. So um, I think that is that's really sound and I really appreciate it. The word that I'm thinking of as as what I want to talk to you about next is optimism. And uh-huh. It's an interesting word because I know you're a big believer in the power of optimism. And as I hear you give some statistics, like there's also some gloominess, especially during a pandemic, like the numbers that you were mentioning earlier. How do you think about pessimism and optimism? Uh, in some ways, you come off as so optimistic and, and passionate, but then there's this other side of you that's also very real about the data and the science and, and some of the challenges. And so as you think about optimism and pessimism, how do you, how do you think about that? Well, first of all, I think we're all in agreement on one thing, uh, that optimism is absolutely core or a sense of hope is core to resilience. Because if you have a doom and gloom view about the world, what's going to happen is you're beginning to build yourself as helpless. If there is one commonality of a resilient person is that they have, or a kid, is that they have an I got this attitude. It's not us instilling it in the child. They have agency and a little bit of control. You can't control the Ukrainian war. You can't control the pandemic. You can't control the mass shootings. But what you can control, says all the research, is how you react. Now, here's some point two in a footnote. Footnote is that, Our goal is not to raise Pollyannas because it's a tough world out there. And that isn't the goal of, okay, sweetie pie, don't worry about it. It's all going to be great tomorrow because unfortunately it won't. But our goal is to help our child so that they don't create such a, a negative, pessimistic view of the world that it becomes permanent, pervasive, and personal. When it becomes those, it robs your child of resilience because they see the world as a doom and gloom scenario. So what do you do? You look at science again, because they've been studying this for quite a while. University of Pennsylvania blows you away on what they're doing. And they've actually discovered that as we as parents can help our seven-year-olds starting at a much, much younger level. Oh my gosh, why wait until they're older? Wait until they're seven to be able to catch their negativity. That's when they're most like, hey, in some cases, um, I've seen some teachers do a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Where are you going? I I was in a third grade class when all the teachers were helping the kids learn to when you hear something negative, just don't say anything. Just go like that to your partner, which is the thumbs down. And then you flip your your hand up to make it a thumb up. So how are you going to flip it? I've seen schools, what they're also doing, I love this, is come up with poster boards on the wall. And what we just do is brainstorm, what are some positive things you can say to replace the negativity? Because don't expect your kid or you to be able to say, I got this, mom, unless you keep reframing it over and over again. Uh, A school in Meadows School, but I just came from last week, which was in Las Vegas. They're doing that and they're coming up with mantras. But the goal is like, I got this. It'll get better tomorrow. It'll be okay. And then what they want each child to do is come up with your own your own, that you're going to be able to help yourself refute the negativity. Now, that's another idea. Here's another idea. You see, each one of these is science-backed. You've got to figure out what works for you. But the other thing we've got to really keep in mind is to get into the shoes of ourselves and our children. This is a population of kids, generation, that has turned on the TV and every day for two years has watched a daily death count of how many people died today. This is a population that has watched live feeds from George Floyd's murder to the most horrific images from a Ukrainian war. How are you going to counter it? First, you got to watch what you watch. I, back to me, turned off the TV. I now subscribe to something profound called a newspaper because the research says that if you read it instead of see it, it won't have such a dismal impact on you all above. I'll give you one more story. 
This is kids and kids always come with the best idea. This is out of Long Island High School. They said and told me they were so worried about their world. This is everything's bad. It's gun violence. It's climate change. It's nothing. We're all going to die from this pandemic. They said, we are so worried about it. But they then said, but we solved it. I said, you solved the world? He says, no, we solved our view of it. We convinced our superintendent to buy a huge plasma TV, put it in the middle of the quad. So when we walk in, the first thing we do is look at the TV. And I said, okay, what's on the TV? They said, good news. We're asking her to find video clips of good stuff. And every day we walk in, I literally saw high school kids looking stressed outside. I mean, you saw it on their posture. Walk in and back to Team 101. They walked in, looked up, arms around each other, high five, smiles, going, we got this because they were seeing good news images. I had an idea once that I pursued a little bit, which was to try to create a network of people that would, it was going to be called kind catcher. Someone's probably steal, steal this idea and run with it. I don't care. But you know, when, when something bad's happening now, everyone pulls out their phone and videos and there's all these acts that are kind that people just aren't necessarily yeah. pulling out their phone to catch people in the act of kindness. And yeah. like, what, what if we could create a network of just catching kindness? And I think we have the capacity, we have the technology and how inspiring would it be for people to change their lens instead of catching someone doing something bad? What if we started catching people doing kind acts? There's a story that I want to share with you. And then I'm going to come back to some of the other elements of thriving. We've hit on a lot of them, um, but there are other elements that I'm curious about. But there's a story of this caddy named Bruce Edwards. And if you're not familiar with golf, caddies are the ones that carry the bag for the golfer. They're the only one that's allowed to talk to the golfer in the middle of a round. They're not allowed to have a coach or someone talk to them in the middle of a round other than the person carrying their bag. So this guy, Bruce Edwards, was a caddy for a golfer named Tom Watson. Tom Watson was not the tallest, was not the biggest, strongest, didn't hit it the furthest, but he's considered one of the legendary golfers. And he performed really, really well under pressure in big tournaments. And so Tom Watson and Bruce Edwards, his caddy, are best friends, are best men at each other's wedding. And when it's time for Tom Watson, as he starts to get older, his caddy, Bruce Edwards, gets approached by this other golfer named Greg Norman. And at the time, Greg Norman's this big, strong, young golfer who's coming up and um, looks like the next great golfer. And Greg Norman wants Bruce Edwards to be his caddy. And at first, Bruce is like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to stay with Tom. Tom's my guy. Tom finds out about it, says, Bruce, this is a great opportunity for you and your family. You got to go work with Norman. So he does. And he works with Greg Norman for a number of years. After a few years, he's like, you know what? I miss working with my friend Tom. He finished his career working with Tom. Fast forward a few years later, Bruce Edwards ends up passing away. And after he passed away, there are stories that he had shared with writers. And one of the writers wrote this story and asked, hey, what was the difference between Tom Watson, this legendary golfer who performed extremely well under pressure and maximized his capacity and his potential? And Greg Norman, who had all the talent in the world and had a good career, but struggled under pressure and struggled in these high intense moments. And what he said was, he said, all right, here's the difference. Greg Norman, the big, strong, young guy who didn't necessarily fulfill all his potential, would hit the ball right down the middle of the fairway, and he'd walk up to his ball, and it would have landed in a divot. And if you don't play golf, a divot is when the grass comes up, and there's dirt that replaces the grass. And if your ball lands in a divot, it's harder to hit out of that ball. So it's unlucky. It's a hard thing to do. Norman would see his ball landed in a divot and go to his caddy, Bruce, Bruce, can you believe my luck? Why does this happen to me? And then he'd go and hit a shot. Tom Watson would have the same thing right down the middle of the fairway and he'd walk up to his ball and it'd be in a divot. And Tom Watson would look at Bruce Edwards and say, hey, Bruce, watch what I'm going to do. So the same exact thing happened to both guys. Yeah. Well, one guy would say, why me? The other guy would say, watch this. And so when I thought about thrivers and the way you described it, I thought of Tom Watson. There's a thriver. There's someone who's saying, hey, watch what I'm going to do. Whereas someone else who says, why me? And yeah. that's not to say there isn't a time to say, why me? You get diagnosed with cancer. You go through a sexual assault. You lose your job. Um, you have something horrific happen. Like there's a time to be a victim and there's a time to go toward being a thriver. As you think about that concept and, and how do we know if we should be in the why me mode and exploring and, and sort of asking questions and how do we know when we need to be watch this mode and, and sort of showing what we're going to do? How do you make sense of that from a victim side and a thriver side? Well, the problem is, is that too many people don't have, remain the victim. 
It's stepping out of it that is the that is the problem. The biggest thing that we see is if a child or a victim continues to feel themselves as helpless, and I don't know another way, that's one of the highest correlations of depression and anxiety. Uh, so that story you just said would be wonderful to be able to share with the kid. I think too often what we're seeing and our children are seeing is nothing but the doom stuff about people. One of the best things that we've discovered that teachers do, parents do, is tell stories about the people who have overcome overcomers. So what do they do differently? And you find your different way. I love the story of Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges, can you imagine a six-year-old, the only child in a, a Black child during the segregation days who is now in a school, a William France Elementary School, where you're going to be the only Black child to walk into an all-white school. And every single day, you're met with angry mobs of parents who don't want you there. Every day, federal marshals have to walk you in. Every single day, you're not allowed to be with the rest of the kids because the parents don't want you there. So you're with one teacher, Barbara Hall. Harvey, who was absolutely glorious the entire year. Well, Robert Coles, one of our foremost extraordinary psychologists, interviewed her. How did you not become the victim, Ruby? How did you overcome it? And she said, oh, I did what my grandmother taught me to do. What did your grandmother taught you to do? Well, every day when I walked in, they started screaming at me. I stood there and started to pray. And I prayed for forgiveness. I said, God, they need to learn some kindness. And it really helped me flip it. And that's what helped me. Prayer can be a helpful moment. And here's the thing. It doesn't make any difference what it is. Ann Matston is incredible from University of Minnesota. She also looked at all the children who have overcome adversity and discovered something that we all need to keep in mind. She said, ordinary things can be extraordinary and make extraordinary magic in overcoming adversity. Hobbies, a dog, prayer. Um, listening to music. I don't care what it is, but many of our kids don't have a go-to self-talk like a, like a Navy SEAL. Stop it. I'm going to be okay. This is what's going to happen next time. A one-two breath. What we've got to do is give our kids a repertoire of coping strategies and buffers. They're all teachable. That's what I tried to do when I was writing Thrivers. I'll give you 300 ideas. Don't you dare try to do them all. Your kid is never going to let you read another book. Find what works for your family. Then start modeling it because our kids have got to learn different strategies so they get out of that helplessness model. We've covered self-confidence. We've covered empathy. We've covered uh, perseverance. We've covered optimism. But I want to transition to another word that you are hitting on somewhat uh, in the last answer that you gave, which is integrity. And mm -hmm. when you talk about prayer, where my mind goes is we're becoming a less religious society. The numbers on on religion or, or organized religion are going down. Um, and I have my own thoughts on that. But there's also a correlation as, as religion, as we become less religious, we also become less philanthropic, which is an interesting component. There are positives that come with becoming less religious as well. So that's worth noting. But when I think of morals, I think of for many generations, the way we learned about morals was through our, our religions. And mm -hmm. they often played a role in teaching us what was right and what was wrong. And so I'm curious for you, how do you think about integrity for the next 20 years? How do we teach it? How do we embed it? Because maybe the religious institutions will make a comeback, but I have a hard time envisioning that. I think it's probably going to look a little different in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. How do you see us uh, teaching morals and right and wrong and integrity? Okay. Number four on the seven strengths of thrivers. Number four is integrity in any particular order and why. First, I'm going to back you back up to you is that thrivers have a strong moral code. There's all different kinds of adversity, but we have discovered that one of the correlations of resilience is that the person knows who they are and what they stand for. When the adversity and the challenge hits them, they're not as likely to be so wiver and waver. They go, I got this because this is what I believe and here's where I'm going. And you don't learn that in the heat of the moment. You learn that before. Let me give you some ideas on how to teach it because it is clearly a trait of resilience. A little background, I'm going to footnote back to you and you're right. One of the coolest studies was done that's very disturbing is they looked at millions, millions of literature 
over the last, I'm talking hundreds of years. And they tracked words that are words of integrity, honesty, respect, kindness, anything that you know is a word of integrity. And what they were very concerned about is that over the last few years, 20, 30, 40 years, there is a nosedive in just when we read books that have character traits in them. The second thing is you learn character also or integrity. It doesn't have to be through religion. It helps to have it through religion, but it also is through example. The best study I've ever seen actually was by Samuel Allender. He's a psychologist who I think is extraordinary, sociologist from Humboldt, and he is a survivor of the Holocaust. Now, at age 12, can you imagine? He's living in Poland, and the Nazis come in. They take his entire family, and his stepmother says, run, Samuel, run, 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 go hide yourself. His whole family now goes off to a death camp and dies. Samuel is saved by a, a perfect stranger named Bowinda. And now he grows up and goes, what creates the Bowindas of the world? Why do some people, Bowinda said, run, Samuel, run. I will hide you. Just run. And she actually risked her life. What creates an altruist? He interviewed hundreds and hundreds of rescuers during World War II Christians who risked their lives to help perfect strangers. You don't know about these people because altruists don't wait for Citizen of the Month awards or trophies. They just do it because it's the right thing to do. But he found some commonalities that are really good takeaways for us and for our own integrity and for people. He found that when he interviewed them, three things kept coming up. And I call them the three E's. The first thing is when he asked them, why did you do that? Why did you risk their lives? And they all said it was how I was raised. Well, how were you raised? First example. I saw my father or I saw my mother or I saw my grandmother and they were always the epitome of integrity or kindness or responsible. Are your children seeing you as the example of who you want them to become? Who are they looking to right now in social media in terms of movie stars and athletes that are getting 50 million people? Are they looking at the character? The second thing was expectation. In the family, I expect you to be kind. I expect you to be responsible. It was one of the rules. And as a result, it became embedded. But the third thing was experiences. My parents always expected me to help out and give back. Or we always do charitable events. And every time that I would do that and, and give the overcoat to the man or the or the blanket to the man. It was the look in their eyes that said, I have to keep doing this. It wasn't the moment that said, I'm going to risk my life to help that stranger. It was that buildup inside that was character. And what do we do? We're so quick when our kids walk home to say, what'd you get? As opposed to what kind of thing did you try? We need to be more intentional about building character because we can instill it. When you talk about character, I think of values and they're probably interchangeable. And so I... I've done a lot of work on my own values. And I find actually that separating personal values and professional values has been helpful for me in having clarity. So personally, I care deeply about humanity and justice, but I'm not in a line of work where I think my job is one of humanitarianism or, or justice. I, I think my job is often to help people perform better or lead better or be better versions of themselves. Someone might say that that's humanitarian, but when I think of humanitarian work, I think of someone who works in a nonprofit or in a social setting. That may be my own bias. But professionally, one of the things I did that I know you appreciate is I combine values. And so my number one value is actually empathetic curiosity when it comes to professional work. And for me, at least, my job is to be empathetic, understanding of my clients, and then really lean into curiosity. And I find when I can do both of those at the same time, that's when I'm the best coach I can be. And so I want to talk about curiosity, but before I do, perhaps we can talk about the multiplier effect that you talk about, because I think for me, I'm not good when someone puts me into a box and when they say you have to be one thing, I'm like, well, I'm kind of yeah. like when I take a Myers-Briggs, I'm like, well, I'm kind of this and I'm kind of that. And, and so I found with my clients, when I give them permission to combine values, it actually is more meaningful. And I know for you, you found that there's actually great value in combining things. So talk about the multiplier effect. And then we're going to close our conversation 
conversation today talking about curiosity because I do think we hit on self-confidence, empathy, self-control, integrity, perseverance, and optimism. And I want to make sure we don't leave curiosity out of the conversation. But can you talk about the multiplier effect and, and how that Yeah, works? it was my aha moment. I spent years trying to write this book, Thrivers, and figure out which are the seven. And then what happened was, or the most, by the way, all of those were were identified because they were highly correlated to resilience, but they were also teachable. They were not locked into DNA. And third, that was fascinating is the teachers would say, but I don't have time to do this because it's, I also want them to be good and strong in a classroom, but they're highly correlated to peak performance. You can't be a peak performer unless you have those, those seven traits. They just work hand in hand. Then what parents would say, but I don't have time to teach all seven. And here's the good thing is it's a rare any of us who has all seven of those. So relax and breathe. I love that you figured out what your strengths are, curiosity and empathy. Each of us has to first figure out which our strengths are. The second thing is recognize that once you teach one, like, okay, I got a confident kid, don't stop because you pair any, any, any of those seven traits with confidence or empathy or curiosity or whatever. They are like superpowers together. They amplify. So it isn't one that makes you resilient. You put two together, it make it even stronger as a superpower. For instance, empathy and curiosity are absolutely powerful together. Because if you have curiosity about another person, you're open to ideas and people, and then you have empathy, that's how you create the altruism. You really want to be able to have those two together as a blend. It doesn't make any difference which two are. If you were to just one little point here, right now after a pandemic, I'd say aim for optimism and self-control because those are the two that every one of us needs. Our hope for the world is kind of going and our optim and our self-control and our stress is building. The third thing is if you wanted to do another one, start building empathy because the world seems to be a little divisive and we've got to get together. So we figure out what we have in common with each other, not how we're different. It's interesting. I went to empathetic curiosity in part because of my flaws. So I'm not all that curious about how this zoom meeting is occurring, despite the fact that it's freaking crazy that we're having this video conversation on two different coasts in the United States. Like, I think that's crazy, but I'm not all that curious to find out like what the engineering is under my computer and how the internet works. But I am extremely curious about humans. And it's probably one of the reasons I didn't do great in school. Like I wasn't all that curious about things that I didn't find all that applicable to my life, but anything involving sociology or psychology, uh, African-American studies was something else I was fascinated by when I was in college. Um, I got good grades in those classes because I was really interested in, in humans. And so like that, that freedom that I had, I was like, wait, I'm curious. Okay, I don't have to be curious about everything, but what is it that I'm really curious about? And then I want to go to this place because I think it's worth mentioning. My parents are Hall of Fame parents, Hall of Fame, like incredible. Um, I love my two brothers. They got their own stuff. I got my own stuff, but they are great human beings. I think people would say they're high integrity human beings. I certainly feel comfortable saying that. What I've come to observe, though, is my parents did a great job instilling confidence in me. They could have easily looked at my grades in school and said, oh, well, he's not this or he's not like his older brother who was getting this grade and this and that. But instead, they, they really gave me space to discover myself. And as a result, I think things worked out OK. Um, but one of the things that I find as I get older is the more I lean into self-confidence and my convictions and my beliefs, the curiosity sometimes gets diminished. And mm -hmm. I find like, I can get very argumentative. I can get, you know, this is what I believe and I'm going to stand for it. I'm going to be altruistic and I'm going to, you know, fight the power type thing. And I can get that passion to come out. And sometimes I become blind to the curiosity or the empathy. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about the opposite and, and when some of these could get in the way of the other one? Because I could see how, for me, at least when I get super confident, sometimes my curiosity actually goes down. Well, I love the fact, first of all, the solution to it is recognizing that you got the issue, you got the problem. So, hey, give yourself an A plus because the first thing is very often we don't realize that we are tuning down and diminishing the window of our openness to others and ideas. And 
We got to worry about that because when it comes to empathy and curiosity for others, we're most likely to empathize with those like us, our gender, our race, our income, our culture, our you know our background. That's why we have got to help our kids think outside the box. What also diminishes curiosity? Be worried. We are seeing a nosedive in American kids faster than any other country in the world. And when you go, where to come up with that? NASA. NASA's worried and they've been studying our children. They're curious at age five. And then what happens is a nosedive. And this is, first of all, one reason for it is the multiplier effect. When stress builds, curiosity goes down. I interview kids right now and they are risk averse. They said, we're afraid to think outside the box. We're afraid to be deeper thinkers. Yale, Harvard is very concerned because kids are so worried to raise their hand and worried about that if their answer is wrong, they'll get a B plus and not an A. There are safe zones in colleges now. If you don't feel safe about listening to that particular speaker, you can actually go play with Play-Doh. We're talking college kids in that room over there and close the door. That's called coddling of the American mind. So curiosity, our children are hardwired for it. They have why questions when they're four. Don't you love those whys? They drive you crazy. But if we're not careful, we shut that. And what we begin to do is give them the answers or pigeonhole them. When I look at, well, let me give you a caveat on this one. Each chapter when I wrote in Thrivers, I was trying to find the ultimate place in the world who really did this well. And I found extraordinary schools and teachers. But who would do curiosity the best in the best is the place that has the best inventions in the world. Surrey, artificial intelligence, driverless cars, Kindle, name something profound. And it's at the MIT Media Lab outside Cambridge. I had to go there. I walked in and within three seconds after talking to the director, I mean, you can see IQ points. They're absolutely phenomenal, but they do some things to create openness to curiosity. So those inventions are there and it's kind of like everything we've been talking about. The first thing they said is one of the first words you used, teams. They said, we're more curious when you're with other people. Too often what we do is we pigeonhole kids by putting them on, you're in this desk, you're in that desk, and you don't talk to the other person. You need creativity. You need to flow. You get into a, now I can't think of another idea. Turn to another person. Team building is critical. Second thing is play. We're talking adults in this place. And the, the thing is, one of the coolest rooms in the MIT Media Lab was lifelong kindergarten. You walk in and there's brilliant scientists, musicians, mathematicians. By the way, team building is also interdisciplinary, not just scientists working together, but with other disciplines. And they're, they're playing Legos. I said, what are you guys doing? They're, oh, well, this is how we get our ideas going. We kind of make it fun. And then we talk as we're going. Third thing, absolutely critical, says the director. You got to make failure an option. You're never going to get better unless you're allowed to make the mistake. And if you know that it's safe to make a mistake, because as soon as you do, we applaud it. We say, that's great that you did it wrong. Now, what are you going to do to make it right? That's how you learn. What they're doing with projects and play and team building is coming up with the best inventions in the world. And they've got the best way to use the science, MIT Media Lab. I'm so curious about how to unlock curiosity. I think it is the thing that I keep finding myself drawn to as a parent, as a coach, yeah. uh, as a human being, it's just like, gosh, I, you know, we talked about empathy before and I'm like, gosh, if, if I can be more empathetic and be more curious, yes. I just find I'm a better version of me. And, and so like, we could have a whole nother conversation about that. That, that was really fun and really interesting, but, um, I know we, we got to run and we got to wrap. So, um, I want to close by just saying thank you. Like this is spectacular. I love how you weave the science, um, but you make it digestible. And I love how passionate you are about also going and doing your own research and talking to children and talking to parents and putting the work in uh, to make sure you can deliver a message. And then you're a heck of a, a messenger and the passion that you have just oozes out of you. And um, so I, I deeply appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank this you. is, this has been really fun for me. I'd like to jive a little bit more with you and, and maybe wrap a little more with you around curiosity. Cause like yeah. I, that's, 
you said it the best. I mean, the five-year-old, there is no five-year-old that's not curious. I've never met them. And like, I'm obsessed with how do we nurture nature and how do we bring out the elements? Forget we, my kids, like as a parent, let's start with my own home. Like that is what I'm obsessed with. I have two very different children, but how do I nurture their nature and how do I not mute their curiosity? How do I not take away their strengths and their, their powers, even though sometimes they're challenging to parent? Um, those are things that I'm probably wrestling with the most in my life as I sit here and talk to you. So I know Jessica Leahy is who introduced us and I love talking to her. Um, and I think of someone like Julie Lithcott Hames, who's thinking a lot about this stuff. I'm sure you've interacted with at some point. Um, so even though we tend to focus on performance in, in this world, I think talking about children and developing children, it starts there. And so, uh, thank you for everything you're doing. If people want to know more about the work you're up to, obviously they can, check the books as well. Give a shout out to where people can find you on social media. I know you're active there uh, and where, what else we can promote to help get the word out about the great work. Oh, well, doing. thank you. I think the first thing from all of us as a groups of grownups is realizing this stuff is doable and it doesn't have to be so darn hard. Um, the book is Thrivers. My goal was to get you the best science ever, but make it into practical, simple things that we can do to raise a strong generation of kids from the get-go. Uh, that's Thrivers. My website's michelleborba.com. I'm a 1L girl, so it's Michelle Borba and Borba rhymes with Zorba, so there you go. I'm on Instagram at Michelle Borba, uh, Dr. Michelle Borba and Twitter at Michelle Borba. But the other thing is just maybe when you say, where do I start? Don't try to do this alone. Find somebody else that you can talk to about this stuff or start a book club. I'd be happy to join you with a book club read aloud. Let's just start beginning to say, this is doable. Our goal is to raise a group of kids who say, I got this mentally strong kids. And that's what our real hope is all about. I, I love talking to you about this. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm on Twitter as well at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. It's funny when you said one L Michelle, I had a friend in college who <laughs> this is when we used to have screen names and instant message each other. Her screen name was Mish with one L and that was her screen name. So I always think about that whenever I see a Michelle with one L. Uh, so definitely go check out Michelle's website. Um, she's just got all kinds of information on there that that would be really helpful for you and highly recommend you check out Thrivers and Unselfie, which we didn't talk as much about, but we did talk about empathy today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Safe travels to Baltimore. If you need a good crab house to go to, uh, even though I'm the DC area, I've got Maryland blood, so I can, I can help you out there. So thanks for coming on the podcast and looking forward to our paths crossing again soon. Take care. Oh, thank you. Me too. It was delight. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You got to figure out what works for you. And what works for me is back to relationships. I've got a team of people that I can get on the phone with and that I Zoom with some girlfriends. I have an incredible husband. That really helps relationships. Number two is reading. It's amazing to me that I've discovered from way back when, maybe it's my parents who always handed books to me, but if I get into a good literary fiction book, I actually can get out of myself and into that character and it really helps. Third thing is a, tw a 20 minute nap. Those are the things that seem to work. I always carry a blow up pillow in my suitcase. That's in my backpack and no matter where I am, I can zone out in an airplane or whatever and get recharged. 